Father God, we just thank you that you're, you're a good God and that, Lord, we can just look at your word uh, and, Father, we can enjoy each other's company and we can smile and laugh and just be a family. And, Father, just as we were singing earlier on, Lord, just really just that word family struck me. And, and Father God, that sense of being one together, that we can have our disagreements, uh, we can irritate each other, perhaps we can even go further than that sometimes. But, Father God, we have that sense of unity, that you are our Father in heaven and Lord, just now as we look at your word, Father God, just stir up that love for one another, that love, Lord, for the least to the greatest, Lord, uh, whatever background we're from, whatever we've done, good or bad, that we would just have that sense of loving our brother and sister uh, this morning. Father, we thank you for this place, and thank you, Lord, for its many years of witness, and may there be many more to come, we pray. And Lord, we do just echo Dave's prayer for our children, for our young people, Lord, overdoing excite, Father, they're not being babysat. Uh, they're being blessed and taught and father we pray for an anointing of your holy spirit on them and particularly on those that are teaching them that lord they would be model christians to them and that your your spirit would stir their hearts to love you and know you more in jesus name and they'll do the same for us we pray in this room amen anyone know what's happening on the 20th of january 2017 Some people will be taking shelter, depending on whose side they're on. It will be the official inauguration day of the 45th President of the United States. Uh, I don't know what you've got planned for the 20th of January, um, but it's going to be an interesting day regardless of what um, country uh, perhaps you live in or you're from or what political um, persuasion you find yourself. But regardless of who gets sworn in on the 20th of January, um, whoever it is, Hillary or Donald or the other guy, Mike, who people are voting for now instead, um, whoever gets voted in will say the following promise. They will say with a hand probably on a Bible, they will say this oath. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Quite interesting, isn't it? The purpose of that service in front of all those millions, possibly billions of people, apart from being the official start of the next president's term of office, is to make very clear what the next four years are supposed to be about, what they're supposed to be characterized by, what that president is supposed to do, he or she. I had something similar when I first came here. It was a lot smaller. Um, It wasn't televised. I don't think it was televised. No, did you tell that? You weren't here, Tim, were you? Um, I, I do believe that the Hearts and Essex Observer um, featured one line, um, I think, uh, about it, so that was quite good. Um, I had a, a commissioning service, an induction service, and uh, where I made um, that things were said to me about what it means to be a minister of a local church. People kept accusing me of being induced, however. Um, people would say to me, you're being induced on Sunday, and I'd say to them, I'm being inducted on Sunday, and unfortunately I never actually had to explain the difference. Um, Today's passage in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 17, is the baptism of Jesus Christ. Something you may well know, if you ever attended Sunday school, you would have drawn it or seen a picture of it, you would have read it. Um, And if you're a Christian, you will know well what happens on the baptism of Jesus. This is the beginning of his three-year ministry. What's amazing about Jesus Christ, is we almost forget this, is that he only had three years of work on this earth. Three years We'll come on to something at the end that sums up those three years very, very well. Some of us have been striving for a lot longer to make an impact on this planet, but three years, it changed history 
Imagine how amazing that is. How amazing is that? But his baptism is kind of like his inauguration, his commissioning service. It's the beginning of his ministry. It's laying out what he's going to be like. And I'll read it again to you. I know it's going to appear behind me as well. It says, it's the baptism of Jesus, Matthew three thirteen to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It's actually, I find it actually quite an awe-inspiring passage to read. Um, you don't always have a reaction to things you read, do you? But actually, what an amazing moment. We're given this privilege of looking into this moment in Jesus' ministry when the Spirit of God rests on him and God the Father speaks as the heavens are opened. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see that, to witness it, to feel it, to hear it? For the record, this is one of the reasons why we believe in adult baptism um, and why we believe it's so important people get baptised as adults after they've confessed their faith. Jesus did it. It's a model that all of us, uh, I believe, should go through, that we should have that public declaration of our faith to our family and friends because we're dead to our old life and we're alive to Jesus Christ and his life, dead to our sin alive with Christ and that's what that represents and this is a really important passage in the Bible Uh, Matthew the writer of this particular gospel is concerned to show his readers who are predominantly Jewish people uh, he's, he's concerned throughout the whole of his gospel to prove that this Jesus man this man Jesus Christ is in fact the very Messiah that had been prophesied from day one in the Old Testament the Jews were waiting for their deliverer waiting for their Messiah and Matthew across all of his gospel is with his analogies of the Old Testament and his quotes from the Old Testament saying to them, it's him, you're going to miss him, he's the one you should be following. And there is a great sadness that so many people in Israel of the Jewish nation spread across the globe, in fact, have missed their Messiah. And we ought to pray for them, actually. We ought to pray that they would have eyes that would be open to see Jesus Christ as the one they've been looking for for 2,000 years plus. And this passage is really, really important this morning for a number of reasons of which we'll try and get through them all. The first is this is Jesus' first public reveal. This is the moment he chose to reveal himself as the Son of God, as the Saviour. If you are like gaming, and there's at least one person in the room that does, you'll know that when they bring a new console out or something, they talk about the day it's going to be revealed. And people who love gaming get very excited. Months and months, speculation upon speculation. And then... At E3, I think it's called, they whip off the thing and they say, here you are, PS7 or 8 or 10 or something, or whatever it is. And it's a big reveal of the next product. Jesus is revealing who he is at the River Jordan for all the world to see. And it's really significant that he chooses the River Jordan to reveal himself to the people of Israel. The River Jordan, of course, was that barrier, that river that the nation of Israel crossed under the leadership of Joshua after that 40-year period of exodus when they escaped Egypt. As they entered, they crossed over that river, they went into the Promised Land, not just to rest from their enemies, but they went in 
to be God's true representatives, holy and obedient, a nation of priests. And so as Jesus reveals himself at the Jordan, almost he's saying to that nation, I'm going to do what you failed to do. I'm going to be God's true representative, holy and obedient. So this is where he chooses to reveal who he really is. This is before everything else. The second reason this passage matters is that we see here the heart of his three-year ministry that's going to come and end at the cross. As he comes to be baptized by John, John is audibly shocked. He says, you know, if I was to sum up, what are you doing? (laughs) This is wrong. This is the wrong way around. You should be baptizing me. I'm the sinner. You're the son of God. I need to be baptized by you, but do you come to me? He's visibly shocked that Jesus should be baptized. He's shocked for many reasons. The main one is because John the Baptist understood who Jesus was. We're sometimes guilty of undermining who he was. Religious teacher, moral leader. He understood that he was the son of God. And he says um, towards the uh, end of chapter 3 that he talks about Jesus coming more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry He will baptize you with his Holy Spirit and fire. It talks about judgment and that this Savior will bring, this Messiah will bring to the world. And so he's shocked. But he understood that he was less and that Jesus was more. He understood that his job was simply to announce the arrival of Jesus and get people ready. And here is Jesus coming to be baptized by the man sent to prepare people for him and one of the reasons he's so shocked is that the baptism John was using for these people in Jerusalem in Israel was a baptism of repentance it was a baptism for people that had turned their back on God deliberately who were being baptized so they could be ready to meet the Messiah Jesus of course was perfect he of course hadn't done anything wrong he is the only perfect person in all of history that is a fact And so when he went through this baptism of repentance that sinful people were going through, it wasn't because he was a sinner, but it's because he's showing us the heart of his ministry, that he comes to identify with sinners. He comes to stoop low to save the lost. What we see in this passage is the humility of Jesus Christ. He makes himself less stooping low to save the worst of us. And I praise God for that humility of my saviour. I meet so many people who love the high horse. Because that's easier up there, isn't it? It's easier to wag the finger from the high horse. But my saviour left his highest throne. He came down to a mucky earth. He stooped low to identify with the worst of us. So that he would save every single one who call on his name. And today that is why Christianity is good news. Because there is nothing you can do that Christ won't forgive you of. There is no too far, there is no too low, there is no too dark for the one who has life in his hands and salvation and forgiveness. That is why every single one of us should ask God where those areas of our life are, where we have sinned, and then ask confidently for his forgiveness. I heard a brilliant story um, analogy of a woman that used to go up to her minister every Sunday and say to him I've had a dream of Jesus every Sunday she'd come up to him and say to him last night guess what I dreamt of Jesus again he was on the cross and I spoke to him and at the beginning the minister thought bless her she's clearly not quite all there 
And then she kept coming back every week. I saw Jesus on the cross and we had a conversation. And in the end, he began to get a bit irritated with her. Stop telling me that. It's not true. Of course you're not meeting Jesus when you fall asleep in your dreams. And so he decided that he would trick her. And he said to her, well, next time you meet Jesus, ask him what I asked forgiveness for last night. She said, okay, I'll do it. A week went by. She came back the following Sunday and he sought her out this time. And he said, so did you have your dream? Did you see Jesus and talk to him? She said, yeah, yeah, I did. And he said, did you ask him what I'd sinned and asked forgiveness for? She said, yep, I did. And he said, what did he say? She said, well, Jesus looked at me and said, I've forgotten. Jesus stoops low in this baptism because he's identifying with a sinful world, standing. He's humiliating himself. He's leaving his glorious throne to stand with people like you and people like me. It doesn't matter what you've done this morning because if you ask forgiveness, he forgets. The devil doesn't. You don't. Jesus forgives and forgets. This is his ministry right here. And this humility, this humiliation, this coming low for the sinner to save the worst is going to characterize the next three years. Time and again we're going to see Jesus defy the judgmental, pharisaical spirit that loved to hate the sinner and the sin. And we will see him going against that culture by having sinners for dinner. And they would say, who is he eating with sinners and prostitutes? Who does he think he is? Yet in private, Jesus would always say to them, sin no more. A model for all of us. And we see that humility is most greatest when in Calvary, the very hands that flung stars into space would surrender to cruel nails as he gave his life so that we could be saved, even the worst of us. But there's more than that. In this, and in this uh, baptism, we see something of what he's coming to do. Uh, we, we read in verse 16 that the Spirit of God descends like a dove lighting on him. And if you know your Bible well or at all, you will know that the dove features in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 8 to 12, after 40 days and 40 nights of rain, Noah and his family are on the ark with all the animals and having sent out... Uh, a dove, this is what happens. He sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find no place to set its feet because the water was all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself. He waited seven more days again and sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, in its beak was a fresh plucked olive leaf. Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days, but this time it did not return to him. Isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit is described as a dove? There's loads of things we could say, but we really haven't got time. Um, But it's not just that gentleness. I believe it's also a picture that in Christ there is a brave new world coming. There is a new kingdom that he is announcing like the same way that dove announced that the waters have receded The waters of judgment are going. Salvation is now finally here through Christ our Savior. Also, we we read in verse 17, a voice from heaven um, 
It says that heavens were opened, sorry. At that moment, the heaven was opened. And if you were to turn to Isaiah 64 and Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, you would see that that phrase, the heavens being opened, are used either to describe the revelation of God or future deliverance of God. Jesus is our future deliverer. And it's all pointing with those kinds of things. The third reason this passage matters is because at this baptism we see the confirmation of who Jesus is. Um, We're doing Alpha again at the moment as a church and uh, in week two of Alpha they pose the question, who is Jesus? And we run through lots of arguments making the point that he is the Son of God. But in verse 17 of Jesus' baptism, God the Father puts the argument to rest. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And again, he's pointing his readers back to Psalm chapter 2, Matthew. He's making sure they remember what was said and prophesied in a messianic psalm, in Psalm 2, verse 7, where God says, I will proclaim proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Uh, That's a psalm that's recognized as pointing forward to the coming Messiah. Here God is saying, this Messiah has finally arrived. God speaks audibly. And in the New Testament, I think it's like three times God speaks out loud. And for the Jews, the voice of God, audible voice of God, is the highest authority. There is nothing higher. And so next time someone says to you, um, why is Jesus the Son of God? Just say, because God said. Because God the Father said. If you're parents here, um, you'll know the horrible reality of a child asking why. Um, and it's the most awful torture. Um, they say to you, can I have that? No. Why? Because I haven't got £10. Why? Because I didn't get any money out of the bank. Why? Because I forgot my card. Why? And in the end, what do you do? Foolishly, you think you're the final authority in your house. And you say you can't have it because I said so. That's foolish because a five-year-old is actually in charge, or in other cases, a 15-year-old, or maybe in some of your cases, a 27-year-old, but we won't go there. That's a bit more awkward, isn't it? Um, But God the Father is the final authority. Why do I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Because God took the trouble to speak audibly out of heaven to say, this is my Son. There is no other argument. It ends right there. Another reason this matters is we see the whole of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But there's something bigger I want to focus on just for a few minutes as we come towards the end of looking at this passage because there's something really amazing that we see, something that actually had me feeling quite in awe as I thought about it this week. Because what we see in this commissioning service, in this baptism, isn't just the beginnings of his ministry, of his work that's going to change the world. Actually, we discover the power by which Jesus Christ will accomplish it, that he's going to accomplish this mission to change the world, bring deliverance and the revelation of God by the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and rests on him. I found that really amazing this morning. I can't quite get my head around how you have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit with God the Son but giving him power and anointing for his ministry. I find it just awe-inspiring, the thought of it. But the Holy Spirit rests on him. And that's what has been the case from day one right to the end. He was involved in Jesus' birth, God the Holy Spirit was. In chapter 4, verse 1, that's why Dave read verse 1, we read this verse. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit 
into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit led him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. In chapter 12 of Matthew, if you were to flick over, you would see Jesus listing and outlining his mission. He quotes the words of Isaiah in verse 18 to 21 of Matthew 12. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one who I love, sorry, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 2, just before he ascends back to heaven, after his resurrection, we read these words. It says, until that day, sorry, I'll start from the beginning. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And this is a really key point because Jesus fulfilled his mission because he did it with the anointing and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And I think there's something that we don't often grasp about all this topic. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's a lack of understanding, but actually we're not merely spectators in the ministry of Jesus. His mission in chapter 12, I don't know if you can put that up, Gavin, um, his, his mission in chapter 12, I've just read out, is our mission. It's also what we're called to do. We're not called just to go to work and take up space until we die. We're called to make a difference, change the world. That might be up London in your job, in the corporate setting. It might be as a parent at a toddler group or with other people. You're called to bring this good news to everybody. And at the end of Matthew, Jesus will commission the church, much like he was commissioned at his baptism, to go and make disciples, to go and change the world. And then in Acts chapter 1, he provides the power by which we change the world. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When the Spirit, you will have power to be my witnesses in all the earth. But when the Spirit falls on the church, he doesn't fall as a dove. He comes as fire. He comes powerfully. And just think about that. I think we often miss it. We're a people with a mission. We're a people with power. And that power comes through the indwelling, filling, baptizing of the Holy Spirit. Last week we spoke about purpose and function. We talk about what we do and why we do it. And our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that word glorify doesn't just mean worshipping on a Sunday. It means carrying out that mission every day. And our great commission all the time. Bringing his kingdom to earth. We're called to be God's people at work or at home or at university or one-to-one or in a crowd at a concert, at a town council meeting, at the scouts or the air cadets or just with our husband or wife. And we need, like Jesus, however, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We need the fire of God to rest on us and to be our power. God isn't looking primarily for gifted Christians. I don't believe. I believe primarily God is looking for Christians who are ready to be anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be used by him. So how can you have that anointing of God's Holy Spirit? How can you have that power of God's Holy Spirit? Well, not that you'd expect it, but it doesn't come from a church leader's hands. You can inspect my hands. There's nothing holy here. Um, Well, 
they're right on the top. But um, they're not holy hands. I can't lay my hand on you and give you an anointing from the Holy Spirit to go and serve God at work or at home or on the mission field. That's not my job. I don't pass that to you. No one can do that for you. You can't ring a, a number and pledge enough money to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't work either. Those people should be ashamed of themselves who do that. You can't fake it either. There's a lot of Christians that try and fake it. But that's not how it works either. So we go back over Jesus' baptism and we see some key things. Obedience to God's commands is key. Let me tell you, if you deliberately break the commands of the living God when you know it's wrong, I don't mean because you can't stop it, but if you break them, because in your heart you'll refuse to be sorry, we all break them. But when you break them and you don't care that you break them, you're not sorry that you break them, in fact you accommodate them, then you can affect that anointing of the Holy Spirit. Humility is the next key thing. When your heart is more concerned for your reputation and what others think of you and your status in society than you are for loving the lost and getting mucky with a sinner, then you will lose your anointing of the Holy Spirit. When we distance ourselves from other people for fear of how we may come across, I believe that's how we can lose some of that anointing by the Holy Spirit. If we're not under the authority of God's word, we have the word of God and the Holy Spirit in this passage coming together. Word and spirit is where it's at, let me tell you. If the Bible is never read in your house, if it's never believed or put into practice in your life, that will affect your anointing of the Holy Spirit. When we seek God with all of our heart, guess what happens? As Julie said, he opens the door. He moves with all of his might. And I want to tell you a story as I come to the end. Gavin Urquitt's over there. It's not about Gavin. Well, that's what you think. <laughs> um, likes to tell me about his youth pastor in a church they used to attend in London. And, uh, and this guy understood what I was talking about this morning. Um, this youth pastor, he understood what it meant to have that anointing of the Holy Spirit, that sense of God's with me and this is going to be amazing, this is going to be powerful, this is going to be brilliant, we're going to change the world, that kind of feeling. And he would say to Gavin sometimes, I really feel God's just with me sometimes so powerfully that I could probably read my shopping list and something amazing would happen. Don't mishear me, please don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting that you don't take the Bible seriously or prepare or deliver it with responsibility. But his point was, when God anoints you for something... It becomes less about you and all about him. And I've had the moments where I feel, wow, God is in this. And it is the most amazing feeling ever. And I guess my point this morning is that Jesus' own life was anointed by the Spirit. He calls us to have that same anointing, that same power to impact our world. And I just want to finish with a plea. This morning, if you are comfortable in your Christianity, be frightened. Be really scared. If you think this is all it is, because this ain't all it is. There is so much more of our God to experience. There is so much more of his Holy Spirit. Do we ever talk about spiritual gifts? Do we talk about spiritual fruits? Do we ever expect a miracle? If, we, if it's no to all of those, then we're in major trouble. Because God is a God of power, a God of demonstrating that power. Not all the time. You can't fake it because you have enough songs. Of course not. But if you expect it and you're the person that the dove and that fire can rest on, then you will see those things happen at work, at home, at school, at college, and even at church. If you are comfortable this morning and you think you're doing enough to change the world for the kingdom of God, you should be scared to the core of your soul 
because none of us are doing enough. If you think, well, I don't work for the church, so you know, my job's up London, I get up, I go to work, come home. Well, God can't use me. Non- nonsense. Absolute nonsense. I'm sometimes jealous of you. Because I would love to be surrounded by non-Christians all day long. I have my fair share, don't get me wrong. But how brilliant it is to be in that environment. You, know, you think you're there just to earn a wage and have a pension and, and retire. No, completely misunderstood it if that's what you think. Please don't, I'm not insulting you. You're there to bring the kingdom of God, the ethics of God in the power of the spirit. And you can apply that to anything else you might do. Determination and perseverance is not enough. We need the power of God's Holy Spirit. We get that, not by faking it or trying really hard, but by being the types of people God loves to send his spirit upon. I want to finish, and I am finished, with a thing called One Solitary Life. And it describes Jesus three years on this earth. Some of you already know it, but this is what somebody once wrote about Jesus. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, a child of a peasant woman, He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put a foot inside a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things you would usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. Whilst he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property on earth he had, his coat. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone. And today he is the centerpiece of the human race, the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Don't you want someone to write something like that about you don't waste life be right with God expect the spirit to move and move in power every day for the kingdom of God let's pray actually if we've all just got our eyes shut uh, and if you haven't please could you shut them I want to ask you, if you feel convicted by what I've just said, um, I ask you just to stand, just where you are. If you feel convicted that you, you, are, you have been comfortable and you want to be uncomfortable, you want more, you want to be that person that makes a difference at work or at home or at school, just ask you to stand where you are, just between you and God. Everyone's got their eyes shut. just want to say a prayer and you want to repeat line by line in your heart if it's what you believe Lord God I've been too comfortable I've taken the easy path 
I've not been as close to you as you call me to be. And so, Lord, now I want to be uncomfortable. I want to have a holy discontent. I want actually to make a difference with my family, with my work, with my friends, with my enemies, and with total strangers. Lord, make me the person who will be ready for your spirit to anoint for works of service. Father, forgive me for not following your son and being ready to receive your spirit. Send him upon my life, please, and use me for your glory. Amen.